Eddie Gloud, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over, the Barnes & Noble podcast. Begin Again is memoir, it's history, it's literary criticism. And like Baldwin himself, you needed to leave the U.S. in order to write this book and to see the U.S. more clearly. What was that like for you? It was a challenge because I had not quite figured out what I was writing about. Initially, I thought I was going to write this intellectual biography, and the sources just weren't lending themselves to a book like that in the sense that I knew I wasn't saying much that was new because a lot of the material has been embargoed. And I knew I wanted to to do something that was more than just simply write about Jimmy. Mm -hmm. And so when I found myself in Heidelberg, initially, actually, I was in St. Thomas and had this wonderful flat. I was going to write looking at the Caribbean Sea and, and then Hurricane Maria blew me back home. So I had to go to Heidelberg and I wasn't in Heidelberg an hour. And there it was, a Black man on the ground screaming at the top of his lungs. And I didn't have to go on MSNBC to talk about it. I didn't have to be a pundit. So I went back to my flat and I started writing and writing. And that's where I found the hook for the book. It was as if getting the requisite distance from the place was the precondition to understanding what I needed to Uh, on the page. Baldwin delivered some of his most powerful work almost 50 years ago. He died in 87. And yet so much of his work reads as if it could have been written last year or last month or last week. So where do you start with a volume of work like that, the body of work that Baldwin produced, but also the fact that it is so timely and so of the moment, and yet sits firmly in history? Yeah, such a great question. I've been struggling and grappling with No Name in the Street for decades. Mm-hmm. And I teach it every year. Mm-hmm. And the book just speaks to me and speaks to the moment. I happen to be teaching my Baldwin seminar during the Clinton-Trump campaign. And I'm reading Baldwin and my students, they're overrun not overwhelmed. I mean, literally, Baldwin is running over them with the insight. And part of what I wanted to do was to kind of, he's trying to teach me something here with no name. I have to figure this out. What is the riddle? What is the answer? And so it was actually me trying to figure out no name that gave me the key to the corpus. And it also allowed me to break loose from this old kind of dichotomy of early Baldwin, late Baldwin, Mm -hmm. and as if the late Baldwin, he had gone bad in the teeth, that he had succumbed to propaganda, that he had lost a hold of his craft. And and he comes out of James Campbell's very troublesome and problematic biography of, of Baldwin. But reading No Name backwards, reading from No Name back to notes of a native son, suddenly everything started opening in a different sort of way as a teacher of Baldwin. Now, writing, begin again, though, was a different sort of process. By unlocking no name, I think I unlocked the the nonfiction. I got a better sense of the way in which he's thinking about memory, how he's thinking about history, the ways in which identity, and how he's thinking about race and identity and, and those sorts of things. Then I remember talking with Angela Davis about the book, and she said to me, in some ways, Eddie, that might be the first carceral studies book. And I go, oh, he is responding to the Safe Streets Act. Hmm. And he sees Ronald Reagan on the horizon. Mm-hmm. 
So he's seeing the collapse. He's seeing the betrayal. And then, oh, oh my God, this book is helping me understand not just simply his corpus, but my moment. Mm -hmm. And so now I've got, I've come out of interpreting Jimmy to actually walking with him to see and understand and interpret my moment. To answer another feature of your question, Baldwin seemed always one step ahead of his time. So he is the preeminent thinker, at least to my mind, about race and democracy in our tradition of letters. So if you're going to teach de Tocqueville, if you're going to teach Emerson, you've got to teach him because he's thinking about democracy and race at that level. In fact, they're trying to think about democracy at his level in some ways. And so he, to my mind, belongs with not only de Tocqueville and Emerson and Whitman, he's one of our premier thinkers about democracy and race. So it makes sense that one would reach for him in this moment of crisis. And I want to go back to something you said a minute ago, too, about the reception for No Name in the Street. There were critics who did not take this book seriously. And that happened with the bulk of his later work, where critics decided that he had put politics ahead of his art. Mm-hmm. But Baldwin, he couldn't separate the two. He saw his moral calling as an artist to speak to what was happening in the world. And it seems like we're still having this conversation. Where does the art begin? Where does the art end? How do you separate that? And you mentioned this in Begin Again, but it never really got credit for the way that Baldwin talks about trauma and the way he cuts it up into fragments. There's an artistic statement that is made in that book that other writers have leaned very heavily into, especially in recent years, where it's this idea that you can do very short chapters or you can do very quick takes. And it's almost cinematic, even in an essay. That's absolutely right. And I didn't pay attention to the formal intervention until mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And when I found the mistake, when I said, wait a minute, this the Dorothy Counts thing couldn't have happened. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, but he's already told me not to trust his memories. Mm-hmm. He's already telling me that what drove him back to the account is sorrow, is a sense of dread. So what does it mean, what does it mean to remember from a space of trauma? Well, the memories are going to be fragmented. Right? He's going to misremember, to use Toni Morrison's language in some ways. And then the fact that Baldwin struggled so mightily with writing the book. Right? He, he called it this mighty motherfucker. Trying to figure out how to offer this account of this compressed history that was literally killing him in some ways. Right? He's writing No Name, but he tries to commit suicide in 69. And so... He's in Istanbul in 70. The book comes out in 72. And, you know, he's working on several projects at once. So you're absolutely right. Baldwin, by 72, he's already trying to give this account of Black power. Mm -hmm. People are already resisting Black power because they're, they're trying to put in place this narrative of the Black freedom struggle in real time where Black power is declined. And Baldwin is resisting that. Or Baldwin in the 80s. This is the age of Cosby. This is Mm -hmm. the moment when the Black middle class is, and Baldwin is still saying, as he says, he's a broken motor, still saying that people don't want to hear it. People don't want to hear it. So again, it makes sense to me that in this moment that people would be reaching for him because he figured it out. At least as, as he put it, he knew he was right. He was there. I saw it happen, as he told Quincy Troop. And Baldwin was always a fierce critic 
of the U.S. We've all seen that meme on social media. We're going around. I reserve the right because I love this country. And you even mentioned in the book that he was profoundly disillusioned. And yet he wasn't ready to give up on the idea of America. And this was sort of his great struggle. And I want to bring up something that you mentioned. It's really the heart of the thing. But it's the lie that Baldwin sought to expose about America and the lie that we are built on in many ways and thing that he really honed in on quickly and stayed honed in on. Can we talk about the lie for a minute? Sure. Sure. I think it's 1964. Mm-hmm. Publishes an essay entitled The White Problem. And I, I quote the passage, I think on page nine in the hardback, where, and I'm paraphrasing here what he says, uh, the Christians who founded the nation had a fatal flaw. Right? They saw themselves as coming to found a Christian nation and and democracy, but they held chattel. And they had to reconcile the role that this chattel, that this, these people were playing in their lives. And the way they did that was saying that they weren't human beings. That Because if they were not human beings, Baldwin writes, then no crime would have been committed. Then here's the line. That lie is the basis of our present trouble. So it is this broad architecture about the American project that protects our innocence that allows us to distort and bend history when history reveals that we are not who we say we are, that allows us to be willfully ignorant so that we can maintain that innocence. In some ways, the lie is what sustains America as never Neverland, this place populated by lost boys and lost girls who don't want to be responsible or don't want to be held to account for anything. And you see, you see this trope running throughout the work about this demand to grow up, this need for maturation. Perpetual adolescence is a sign of corruption, as it were, for him. So the lie is this ideology. The late Sack Van Berkovich at Harvard describes it as the American ideology, that we are this example of democracy achieved. And the only way you can say that is that you have to turn a blind eye to what we've done and what we continue to do. The irony, of course, is that we are living in a moment where the lie is being reasserted in real time right now. That's another conversation. Which we will get to. (laughs) I have some notes on that, too. (laughs) He never loses faith in the idea that people are capable of change. And yet he's the one standing on the hill saying, well, I see what you do. I see what you do. And yet I still have hope. And that's an extraordinary place to be standing. And that's an extraordinary statement for me, at least from my point of view, to say, I do believe that we are capable of change, that we can move forward. He has survived the assassination of three dear friends, Malcolm X, Medgar Evers, and Martin Luther King Jr., and in fact was left extremely distraught after King was assassinated. And yet here he is saying, I see what you do, America. I see what you do. And yet I believe there is reason to hope that we can change. Yeah, you know, he doesn't he doesn't hold on to this the idea of America. He's mm-hmm. very critical of that. Mm-hmm. But but if we, and, and I, I hear that my pronouns mm-hmm. blur, if we don't hold on to that, then what 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 is left? Mm-hmm. Either we just take the bribe and just pursue our own selfish interests. Or we give up on it all. And to me, that, that's suicide, right? Why stick it out? So Baldwin's hope, he has this line that comes out of, I came across this in an interview in, in 1970 in Istanbul at a party in Ebony Magazine. 
And he has this wonderful line. He says, hope is invented every day. And, you know, if hope is invented every day, that means you have to hold off despair every day. And that's so blues soaked. And I use this example in my interviews. I mean, when I say, um, imagine an enslaved woman or man, and there's nothing about her or his condition that would lead them to believe that their lives could be anything but that of a slave. But then in a moment, in an experience, they may be looking in the eye of someone who loves them. And they see that love. They see it. They see absolute adoration, even though it could be torn asunder by the violence of the institution. Or they hear the innocence of laughter of children out outside the cabin. And those moments become space for the imagination to do the work of thinking beyond the immediacy of now. Because if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be here. Jimmy wouldn't have made it. At the end of Nothing Personal, he talks about that journey. And so hope is blue-soaked. There's no naivete about this place. It's not sentimental. Baldwin loathes sentimentality. He says it's the mask for cruelty. But he's still a romantic. And when I say romantic, I mean in, in the sense that there is an unbreakable faith in the capacity of human beings to be otherwise. So there's an unshakable faith in us. And he has to have it. I have to have it. I couldn't survive if I didn't. I think it's especially important now to really focus on that attachment to hope because there's so many readers who look at Baldwin and they attach themselves to the rage. They attach themselves to the grief. You know, rage is another way of expressing grief. But I don't think Baldwin necessarily has gotten the credit that he should for being as vulnerable as he is on the page, especially in that time as a gay man, as a Black gay man in America in the 1950s and 60s and 70s and even into the 80s. The way that he was able to capture his emotion, and you even write about this, you say, it would make my white classmates profoundly uncomfortable, which made me profoundly uncomfortable. And I haven't read Baldwin in a classroom setting, probably for reasons not dissimilar to that, (laughs) to be honest. But he's been a touchstone for me as a reader since I was a teenager. And I I was very fortunate that I came to him very early, uncle who was a librarian, (laughs) and let me have the run of the place. (laughs) So I was very lucky. (laughs) But all of that heavy, heavy vulnerability that he's able to express and all of the nuance and all of the complexity, and he doesn't actually get credit for that. Yeah, you know, because oftentimes, especially when we read the nonfiction, we mm-hmm. lose sight of him as an artist. You know? mm-hmm. And there's an understanding of the artist that Baldwin has. You got to run towards your feet. You can't run away from it. You have to plumb the depths of that cellar. You know, you got to get in into the muck if these characters are going to be real. One of the ways in which we often misread his criticism of, of Richard Wright is that he's saying we tend to reduce Black life to a tangled web of pathology. Mm-hmm. We only want to read us read our lives in this very materialist way, which wouldn't allow us to account for how Richard Wright emerges out of Natchez. We can't account for you, Richard. So Baldwin wants to give voice to the interior life of Black folk. What Toni Morrison tries to do in her fiction, which Baldwin said was too dark, you go into Toni's world and it's difficult to come out. And so this sense of the depth of our wound 
of our suffering, the complexity of our love, our need for touch, those empty spaces. Baldwin wants to be true to that because it's in the music. It's, it's in the way we inhabit space and time. But he also wants to keep track of the material conditions. He wants to do both at the same time. So when people say the later Baldwin becomes the very object of his criticism of the early Baldwin, they're missing the whole point. So I say all of this to say is that rage and grief, they light the kiln. You can't run past the rage or the grief. Can you imagine? Grew up in a Pentecostal family. Obviously, his sexuality was the source of wound in relation to his stepfather or the only father he knew. You, When you read closely the, the material, his writings, you know he's been sexually abused. He's in Greenwich and it's a grown man is his boyfriend. And he's still a teenager. And To Crush a Serpent, the last essay, the Freaks essay in the Toni Morrison edited volume, it's clear he's, he's experienced sexual violence, wound, or the stories of him returning to his apartment in Istanbul, beaten. And so wound is at the heart of it. And Baldwin is thinking through it. That line that you get in The Price of the Ticket that I never thought, paraphrasing, that someone could love you know, an ugly boy like me. So the need for love standing alongside the feeling of being unlovable, that's not reducible to sociology. At that point, we're getting at the heart of what it means to be a human being trying to live a life between those two momentous breaths, the first one and the last one. So oftentimes when we read his nonfiction, we lose sight of the fact that he's an artist of the highest order, of the highest orders. He brings that same sensibility to his political commentary. You also talk about Baldwin as a critic of the aftertimes yeah. in Begin Again. And I'd love to take a minute and just talk about what that means to you as a reader and a writer and a professor. I get the phrase from uh, Whitman's Democratic Vistas. Mm-hmm. And Whitman's trying to make sense of what has happened in the aftermath of the Civil War and, and Reconstruction. And he sees g- greed everywhere. Whitman is, of course, deeply troubling because at this time he's redacting the abolitionist elements from Leaves of Grass. He doesn't believe Black people should be accorded the benefits of citizenship, as he writes in his editorials in Brooklyn, that we're baboons and barbarians. We don't have the capacity to be citizens, although he was anti-slavery. But the aftertimes is this moment when a world is dying and a world is desperately trying to come into being and the ghost haunt. So something is dying, something is trying to be born, but ghosts have you by the throat. And so here we are, I'm like thinking about our own moment. Obama's elected, folks are talking about, you know, we turned the corner and then you see all of this stuff, all of the detritus from the Tea Party to the gutting of the Voting Rights Act to the election of Donald Trump. And what you see is in, in, in interesting sorts of ways is the ugliness of the interregnum. That blues crossroads is, isn't a great place to be, right? So if something is dying and something is trying to be born and the ghost hat you're about around the throat, no wonder Robert Johnson makes a deal with the devil to get out from under it. So it became this moment for me. Baldwin is seeing it. He's seeing that folks are turning their backs on the civil rights movement. So they have these that extraordinary paragraph in No Name in the Street where he compresses the history from the moment he lands in Montgomery with that big typewriter 
to the fact that at this time, Angela was still a baby, that these Panthers were still crawling around on their knees. I mean, you get this amazing compression of history. Then you end with Angela most wanted for the FBI. And, you know, what has happened? Not over a course of, of a century, but over a course of five, six, seven, a decade, you know? And so he sees, and then he also sees what happened to those babies. I mean, it's so fascinating. Stokely Carmichael was one of the best organizers in SNCC. Kwame Touré, one of the most fearless, nonviolent organizers in the South. That Howard contingent of students who joined SNCC, they went to my hometown in Mississippi and they get radicalized, not because, you know, they come to hate white people, get radicalized because, as Carmichael said, they, they experience raw terror. And Baldwin saw them turn their backs on them. I begin the book with this story of Baldwin talking to those kids in that apartment because they were the ones who met. And I end the story with me, with those people smoking weed, in the because <laughs> I'm trying to say something about these two moments and these kids. Baldwin refused to turn his back on them. And then he continues to grow. So he sees Reagan on the horizon. He sees it. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs. So he's writing in this period where one world is dying. Another world is desperately trying to come into being. And the country doubles down on its ugliness. And so this is why writing with him in Begin Again, I had a language to describe our own current moment, our own times. Baldwin is really clear, too, throughout the nonfiction, that we have to muster the moral strength to reimagine America. To quote you in the book. And yeah. I'd like to take just a second because respectability politics is still something that is chewing up and down communities of color, whether black or brown in this country. And I love this idea of Baldwin saying we have a moral obligation as human beings to make things better for everyone. And yes, we have to, we have to challenge the lies and we have to challenge the mythology because we do love our mythology. (laughs) I grew up in Massachusetts. I know lots of things about pilgrims. And yet here we are in a way almost undercutting ourselves. And Baldwin was on the receiving end of this too at one point, because he also said, listen, I don't have solidarity with Black people just because I'm Black. I have solidarity with the people who want genuine change. And it's tricky territory to navigate. So how do we do that? How do we get to the other side of this conversation? Painfully. Mm. There's no easy way. Baldwin found himself caught between the Scylla and Charybdis of Black politics. So there's a sense in which, even as he was embracing Black power, many of its proponents thought him unworthy. He's a sellout. Eldridge Cleaver and, and, and that ilk. At the same time, folks were skeptical of him from the civil rights side because of his sexuality in some ways and, and the like. The only thing you could do is be true to yourself, be true to your witness, and be true to love. So we have to love our way through this gauntlet and not fall for easy comforts, the illusions of easy comforts. You know, he's a Christian. Many people might describe him as post-Christian, but he's certainly shaped by a Christian sensibility. 
he wouldn't fall for the idolatry of race, even as he understands its significance to the culture that produced it. In a letter to his brother, we have to do something. We have to respond to this mystical Black bullshit. He says it in Many Thousands Gone. You use the categories that spring the trap. But he's also very clear that we can't just then retreat to some ahistorical space where we stand above all of the mess. No, 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 no. Uh, to use a Beckett metaphor. No, we're in the mess. And we just have to slug our way through it. And that means there are going to be moments of overreach, moments of, of conflict, as we try to figure out how to be differently, I think. Yeah. But I believe Baldwin is absolutely right. He says, remember that line? Again, I'm paraphrasing where he says, I want us to do something unprecedented, to imagine ourselves without the need for enemies. Now, that line comes out of a letter of resignation to the liberator, a Black power periodical that has been anti-Semitic. I want to imagine, I want to imagine a way of being in the world without the need for it. Every time I say that in any fashion, it gives me a chill. Baldwin writes a lot about his loneliness. You see it everywhere in his work where he knows he's in exile. And he's an outsider, no matter where he is. And yet he picks up stakes very famously and goes to Paris in 48 and stays there very productively, but comes back to the U.S. in 57. I know the story of Baldwin. And yet I was almost kind of like, well, why did you come back? Attachments. Mm -hmm. Love, loved ones. When I was in Heidelberg, just for that little period, the silence, because you don't have the language. So you can't speak. So you're quiet. So you're seeing things differently. You're hearing your own language in a different way. The longing for home. The way he talks about go tell it on the mountain. He couldn't finish it. Couldn't get the book right until he connected with the culture that made him who he was. I couldn't get the language right. So I had to listen to Ma Rainey and Bessie Smith and all of these folk to kind of give him some sense and so now he's coming back to New York to, to hawk, you know, Amen Corner. But he's also coming back to get some greens, some fried chicken from Mama, to hang out with David, to go to the club and see old friends. And then of course, whenever you've been away for a while, when you come home, you want to show off, show off who you are, who you've become, to reference nothing personal. One gets a sense of the importance of these communal attachments to surviving it all. You can't do it alone. So he always wanted his family near it. So he buys one big apartment building and puts them on every floor. So he needed to get home and see his folk and eat his food and listen to his music and hang out with his peoples in Harlem. Yeah, yeah. But isn't it also an opportunity for him to merge two selves? He's got the Baldwin of Harlem and the United States and the Baldwin of Paris. I don't know if they're entirely equal in his mind. I know he needs both. And maybe place takes precedence. Maybe it's more defined by where he physically is in the moment. But the way he writes about creating character and finding your space, as it were, it's mm. kind of fascinating to me. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. That wonderful formulation and nobody knows my name in the introduction. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating. I want to find it right quick. Where he's thinking about what it meant for him 
to leave. Mm -hmm. In America, the color of my skin had stood between myself and me. In Europe, that barrier was down. Nothing is more desirable than to be released from an affliction, but nothing is more frightening than to be divested of a crutch. It turned out that the question of who I was was not solved because I had removed myself from the social forces which menaced me. Anyway, these forces had become interior, and I had dragged them across the ocean with me. The question of who I was had at last become a personal question, and the answer was to be found in me. So here, I think that formulation troubles the distinction between the Baldwin of Harlem and the Baldwin of Paris. Baldwin is engaged in this ongoing effort at arduous task of self-creation. And what he says in his in the interviews with Fern Margie Ekman is he says, I realized that I did not have to be, I didn't have to dance a jig. I didn't have to respond to what white folks thought of me. And I learned that in Paris. And once I left Paris, because as he put it, I didn't trade one illusion for another. <laughs> now he's stepping into a different way of being in the world. So the Harlem Baldwin, the Paris Baldwin, the Istanbul Baldwin, the Kibbutz Baldwin, the London Baldwin, all of these are spaces where Baldwin is engaged in that excavation and creation of the self that he imagines himself to be, if that makes sense. It does, because there's a great line from Baldwin that you quote in the book, to accept one's past, one's history is not the same thing as drowning in it. It's learning how to use it. And you use this line to transition into a comment from Nell Painter. It's all about the questions we ask. The questions have changed. I mean, the questions always change. That's why we keep writing history. So what are the questions? Yeah, she's amazing. But what are the questions (laughs) we need to be asking right now? Well, one question that we certainly need to be asking is who do we take ourselves to be? Who do we we want to be? Of course, that that to me is a moral question, Mm -hmm. right? And the first version of it, who do we take ourselves to be, involves an assessment of our current arrangements, an honest assessment of this place. And who do we aspire to be, to my mind, also requires a kind of honesty. Do we genuinely aspire to be a multiracial democracy? Do we? Then what does that look like in its detail? Or do these folks still believe, do they still believe that they're engaged in charity, that they're just giving us a gift of allowing us to be here? I had this wonderful conversation with Steve Schmidt, and he says, we're going to invite you to the table. No, 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 no. We don't need invitations to a table that we own, that we help build. So what are those questions? How do we give an account of the way we live together? How do we honestly give an account of our failures? And those sorts of questions are really critical. When we think about the debates around critical race theory, and you say to people, ours is the country we have made. Racial inequality is not something that just happened. It is a deliberate consequence of decisions. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to be otherwise, we're going to have to be just as deliberate in our remedy. But to admit the former is to conceive guilt. And folk don't want to do that. And Jimmy knew it. He kept telling us. They can't admit, as he put it, they can't admit that what I'm saying is true, because if they do, it says something about them. And here we are in 2021. And the formulation still obtains. I'll be there. I see what you do. I see what you do. You have been very open that you came to Baldwin in graduate school as a serious study. But you teach Baldwin at Princeton. Mm. What have your students taught you about Baldwin? 
Oh my God, everything. I remember one student charting the evolution of Baldwin's judgment of his father, mm -hmm. which was so helpful for me in relation to my own father. I remember my students finding formulations and notes of a native son, almost exact sentences, and seeing them echoed in the evidence of things not seen. So the continuities and the breaks, I marvel at the way in which they revel in his language, how they squirm, how they sit in the discomfort, but also revel in the language. My first assignment, you know, they only have to write two papers. And the first paper is a personal essay. Mm -hmm. I want them to inhabit the genre, to use autobiography as a point of entry to social critique. And what he inspires, just mind-blowing, just mind-blowing, just the attempt to be writers. Sometimes they fall flat on their faces, but other times it's just stunning. So, and they've taught me to listen to him more carefully. Baldwin is scary as a companion. I've said this over and over again, that I barely survived writing the book. Mm. I drank too much. Every time I wrote there was a glass of Jameson right next to me. I love Irish whiskey. And so I'm drinking because he was asking things of me and I was answering them in a way that I thought everything was going to collapse around. Because initially the sentences weren't dancing. Mm -hmm. And I remember hearing him say to me, I remember this because, you know, I keep a saint's candle right of him right next to my computer. And I remember him saying to me, if we're going to do this together, old boy, you're going to have to deal with you. And so I started dealing with the fact that I'm a wounded child. I still have all of these things going on with my own dad, and, or at least I did. And, and so, and then the architecture of my own lives. And it wasn't until I grappled with uh, the conversation between him and Nikki Giovanni. And Nikki Giovanni said to him, brash, Baldwin is being generous. He's this giant Nikki Giovanni, bro, she's just young. And He's talking about the usually he has to go to work. The man goes to work. Da, 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 da. She says, yeah, you go to work. Da, 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 you come in home and take it out on me. Lie to me. And Jimmy was so confused. He didn't know what to do. And that moment gave me license to say, okay, you've gone too far. Back up off me. Let's keep writing. Let's keep writing. That's a long-winded tangent. But the students taught me to listen to him. And listening to him meant that I opened myself up to my vulnerabilities, which meant that I had to run towards my fear. And in doing that, I drank a lot of Bam Irish whiskey. <laughs> we got a really great book. <laughs> we really did. Thank you. Can we really do this as a country? Can we begin again? Can we do this? You asked me that today. Mm -hmm. um, I pray that we can but I'm not sure, to be honest with you. There are some among us who believe that America cannot be imagined any other way. Mm. I tweeted the other day that America is much more than an idea. America is an argument mm -hmm. had over time. And there are those who hold a certain view of America who backed up that claim with state power and violence. Mm. And there are those who have responded with a counter-argument. My great-grandmother comes out of that tradition. She's buried on the coast of Mississippi. Mm -hmm. And I got to fight because she bequeathed this to me too. 
this is mine. I'm not going to cede it to them. But it seems to me that there are those who believe, I wrote this line in the book, and I remember my editor being scared shitless when I wrote it. I said, the idea of white America is irredeemable. There's nothing that can be salvaged of the idea that because you're white, you ought to be valued more than others. But the fact that the idea of white America is irredeemable doesn't make us irredeemable. That distinction for some of our fellows is impossible. Mm -hmm. And that's when I get into my darkest hours, when I think these people can't see it. These folks can't see it. But keep screaming, keep writing, keep talking keep back. We have to figure out how to imagine this place differently. Mm -hmm. And we can't reach for a consensus narrative, that consensus story. The only consensus we have is that we've been arguing. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing. And how do we render that argument in a way that isn't just simply shards, fragments? How do we render it in such a way that it unleashes a different ground for thinking of the nation and of our relationship to each other. How do you write full-time, though, when you're also teaching and running the department? Uh, you have a lot. Yeah, I, I write in my head. Mm -hmm. So I do a lot of building structure. I get the argument straightened out. Then I have to craft sentences. So it takes it's a little bit longer. So if I have a superpower, it's my ability to compartmentalize. So there's the stuff around the department. There's the stuff around MSNBC. There's the stuff around speaking engagements. There's the stuff around writing. The stuff around life is a different question, but, you know, all that other stuff. That's What's the thing that you really want readers to know about Begin Again? It works on at least two levels. Mm -hmm. The first is something that we've been talking about. When I say we need a third founding, I really mean we need to reimagine this place if we're going to survive. We have to do this. How many damn calendars have the French had, right? In terms of how many times they've started over, we have to imagine ourselves differently. So that's one takeaway. And hopefully I've told a story or I've given a, an account, a description that warrants such a conclusion. The second is much more personal. And I suspect it's a lesson learned from walking with Baldwin. And that is what it means to bear witness, no matter the cost, to bear witness and to bear one's soul on the page. I refuse to take the breath. I refuse to, even though people think I have, because you're on television and you wear nice suits and you, no, but no, no, that I refuse to take the breath. And I pray that you do too. That seems like a really good place to wrap the interview. <laughs> Thank you so much, Eddie Gloud. Begin Again is now out in paperback. Oh, this has been lovely. Thank you so much. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 